What causes homelessness? It's a massive issue. What causes it? Most people often think, well, homelessness happens when someone is evicted from their home and then they use up their last dollar. There's no more resources left. But if you talk to the homeless and if you talk with those especially who work with the homeless, one thing they'll tell you is that someone becomes homeless not when they lose their last dollar, but when they use up their last relationship. See, Robert Hall says, he's an author and speaker on relationships in his book, the Land, This Land of Strangers. He says, the truth is, relationships are the most valuable and value-creating resource of any society. There are lifelines to survive, grow, and thrive. See, you can be without a home, and you can be without a dollar, but if you have meaningful relationships, you have a place to stay, right? If you look around you're paying attention, you're gonna see that we have a relationship crisis on our hands. It often goes unnamed, but it's certainly felt in our world. We see it and we feel it all around us. Families are disintegrating. Marriages are collapsing. Communities no longer have this common identity like they used to. Consumers don't trust businesses because we just assume they're gonna sell our information to make an extra dollar off of us. Political and religious discourse and conversations sow dysfunction and disunity and division. See, broken relationships at every, every level threaten our ability to grow and thrive as a society. At the end of his book, Hall summarizes it this way. He says, broken relationships are breaking us. I think he's nailed it. In fact, it's because of our broken relationship with God that all of our other relationships are prone towards breaking it's actually why we started Seven Mile Road. The reason we started this church is that we wanted to be a community where relationships with God and our relationships with each other could be mended. That's why we say we want to be a church where neighbors become family. I remember what we said this last week as we were defining the church. We said, the church is the beloved and redeemed people of God who are filled with the presence of God, set apart for the purposes of God in the world. It's going to be our working definition as we move through this Membership Matters series. See, the church is the people of God, and we are sent out into the world to be agents of reconciliation. In fact, that's one of the ways that Paul talks about who the church is, reconciling people to God and reconciling people back together, families and friends, neighbors and networks. Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, Christ reconciled us first to himself. Then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting trespasses against them. And then he entrusted to us his message of reconciliation. Verse 20, he says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ and God is making his appeal through us. That's the purpose of the church. Last week we saw that the church is not a building. It's not a program. A church is not a spiritual services provider. We are God's people and we have the joy-filled responsibility to be the medium of his message, ambassadors of his reconciliation. And as God brings the lost back together, we're not left to wander alone. 
We are adopted into God's family at large and we're placed into these local families called local churches. Believers are not called and are not left to be homeless. We have a home and we are called into deep and meaningful, life-changing relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That relationship is called church membership and it matters So today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, what Kate read for us, to see that we are called to belong in meaningful membership because it's biblical, it's beneficial, and it's beautiful. It's biblical, it's beneficial, and it's beautiful. So first, let's jump in and see how it's biblical. As we open up 1 Corinthians, uh, I want to orient us to the book. See, Paul wrote this letter to a very specific local church dealing with specific problems that they were facing as a church community. In fact, you'll see in your Bible that you have 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, and it's actually a, a, a dialogue of letters. In fact, 1 Corinthians is responding to a letter they wrote to Paul. In fact, we see Paul saying, I'm going to respond to some things from your letter. He was in communication with this local church dealing with specific problems that they had. See, they become divisive and they had lost what it meant to love one another. So with that background, let's look at chapter 12. We'll begin in verse 12. Paul says, for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. So to make his point about the body of Christ, he uh, uses an analogy of the human body. What's brilliant about that is it's so accessible to us. Everyone can understand what a body is like because you have one. You intuitively get it. Everybody knows that the body is one even though you have many different members, right? Each member of the body is in relationship to the other members of the body. And do you know what we call the relationship of the members of the body to each other? Membership. If you combine the word member and relationship, you get membership. Membership is simply our way to describe the relationship that different members have with the body. The body is not some connected pile of different autonomous body parts, right? They're not randomly connected just by sinew and ligaments. Each member of the body from limbs and organs, muscles and bone, nerves and blood, are essential for the body to work properly. A collection of body parts doesn't make a body, just like a collection of auto parts doesn't make a car. But when they're assembled in a particular way with a particular purpose that you have a cohesive whole now, and when it's functioning, it is a body. Paul is saying, The body of Christ is like our human bodies. So the next logical question to ask is how is it? What is holding together? What brings together the members of the body of Christ? Well, he answers that for us in verse 13. Look look at these words. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jew or Greek, slave or free, all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. See, he's saying that the spirit of the living God has baptized us into one body. He did that work. We don't bring ourselves together. In fact, he's the one that brings us together and he's the one who holds us together. That's God's work. 
any category that could potentially divide us, and there's a lot of them, right? In his day, it was Jew or Greek, slave or free. We could add on to that list, male or female, rich or poor, educated and uneducated, black and white, Latino or Asian. There are many things that would naturally kind of pull us into different camps, right? We, we just, we tend to just, move, like if you let the, the, the room be, you'd see people kind of drawing to the people that they feel most like and most comfortable. And divisions start. We value different things. What Paul is saying is it doesn't matter. No element of diversity is meant to bring division Why? Because we have a new, higher identity. In Christ, our primary sense of identity is that we are members of the body of Christ. So I could say it this way. I am a son of God adopted into God's family as a fundamental fundamental reality before I identify as a patronella. That becomes a, a baseline fundamental reality. Or I could say it like this. I am a citizen of God's kingdom first before I'm an American citizen. It's a deeper citizenship. It's a more real and lasting and eternal citizenship. Or I would say I'm a member of the body of Christ before I'm a member of any other group or organization. Do you feel how that identity changes the way you think? Do you feel that today? Do you see it? See, the body of Christ does not consist of one member, but of many, and yet we're still one body. Now you may be thinking, okay, is Paul talking about like the big C, capital C, church universal, or is he talking about the lowercase c, a specific local church? That's a great question if you're asking. And the answer is yes, it's both. See, the amazing thing is every believer, everyone who is in Christ is a part of the universal church. So our brothers and sisters all over North and South America, Africa and Asia, my mates down under in Australia, all those in Christ are a part of the big capital C church and it spans geography and time. So you're a part of a church. There there are saints who have long gone before us And we're all a part of the universal, big C, capital C, body of Christ. Yes and amen. And at the same time, from a practical point of view, we live out what it means to be a part of the big church in a local context. Why? We are by our very definition, geotemporal beings. Here's what that means. You exist in one space at one time. By definition, you're here right now and not there. You can't do anything other than that, right? We are a localized people. And so the Bible has all kinds of analogies to help us understand what that means. So the church is a body, right? We're looking at that right now with mutually dependent members. Sometimes it'll call us the church is a temple of the spirit where God's presence dwells among his people. Or sometimes he'll say the church is the family of God, highlighting the relational connectedness that we have with a new shared identity and a shared mission. And all of these metaphors become real and concrete in particular places with a particular group of people. They get put into practice locally. Or another way to say it is this. You need a body of Christ like this one in order to be the body of Christ. You need a family, a particular family, in order to be the family of God. So it's not just ethereal, that you can actually have a place and a context to live out what it means to be the family of God. 
See, these metaphors are not meant to be cutesy things we put on mugs. It's actually meant to be the way that we live out what it means to follow Christ. So is there a single verse that I can point to that explicitly commands church membership? No, there's not. There's no explicit command, and ye shall be a member at the local church, 1 Corinthians 12.4, okay? Doesn't exist, just made up the book of the Bible. Some of you are like, I've never seen 1 Christians. It's not in there, I made it up. But there's lots of verses that imply and actually assume membership. It was so common that it wasn't even something they needed to really talk about because they just naturally, when the church started, started organizing themselves in local contexts. There's lots of verses that assume it. There's plenty of verses that command community and meaningful community demands commitment. And we actually do a lot of theology this way. Here's what I mean. There's not a single verse that says, don't shoot up heroin. Not one. So does that mean I get a pass if I want to go have a crazy weekend? Nope. There's no verses that say, don't shoot up heroin. In fact, the Bible never even mentions narcotics. Did you know that? That doesn't give us a free pass. But the Bible does say things like, don't get drunk on wine. And the implication behind don't get drunk is don't give yourself to substances that will impair your ability to think clearly and make wise decisions. So it's not a hard stretch to say if God is not for me getting drunk, he's probably also not for me shooting up heroin, right? The line between those things is not too far. Don't do cocaine is in clear teaching with the biblical ideas and implications in scripture, So 1 Corinthians 12 helps us see the biblical reality of memberships in relationship to one another. Now, I'm going to rifle through a bunch of passages and examples of where we see this kind of scattered throughout the scripture. Let me give you some other examples of where the local church membership actually helps to make sense of scripture. So much, in fact, that without the idea of localized, organized uh, churches, these commands and these, these other scriptures just don't even really make sense. First, let me say this. It should be noted that the overwhelming majority, close to 80% of the time, when the scripture uses the word church, it's actually referring to a local church. So it'll say the church in Corinth or the church at Ephesus or the church in Philippi. It's very clear they're talking about a location, a specific church. This church, not that church. Second, The leaders of the church, the elders, are commanded to lead, oversee, and shepherd their church. So listen to what uh, the uh, apostle Peter says in chapter five of his letter. So he says, I exhort you, I exhort the elders among you, and as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Listen, he says, you need to shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So that when the chief shepherd, that's Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Verse five, he says, likewise, you who are younger in the faith, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We're gonna dive really deep into what the leadership structures of the church are supposed to look like next week, but for right now, it's important to know who are the elders called to serve by leading with eagerness and gentleness, right? Those verses said, elders in the church, 
lead and shepherd those who are among you with eagerness and gentleness, right? It says those among you. That very, that phrase doesn't mean any Christian anywhere. So like as an elder of this church, I can't just go find someone anywhere and go, hey, I'm one of your elders, pay attention, right? No, it's those who are among you. That phrase means a location, Elders are called to shepherd the ones among them, the ones who have been given to their charge. That implies that the shepherds would actually have some way to know who that is, more than just people who show up on a Sunday. In fact, Hebrews 13, 17 says that elders will give an account to God for how well they led their congregations. So as an elder, I'm not, I'm not giving an account for every church everywhere, just this one. I take that very seriously because it's sobering that I'm gonna stand before God and go, here's how I did with what you gave me. And in order to do that, it's important to know who is actually here, who's committed and who is not. See, for leaders to lead, they need to know who they're to lead. It's like the primary basic leadership principle. It's actually something leadership books don't even talk about because it's just assumed, you know, first you've identified who you're leading. You can't lead unless you know who it is. Likewise, this passage said that members are called to follow the elders with humility, which again begs the question, if members are supposed to follow their leaders, which leaders? Any leader anywhere? Anyone who claims to be a pastor? Are you supposed to submit to churches with elders who have poor theology and toxic leadership? No, of course not. You, as a member, are called to do first the good work of finding a life-giving, Christ-exalting, biblically faithful, city-loving church, and then dig deep roots there and gladly and humbly follow the leadership God has given you. See, God has given a leadership structure to the church, and membership gives clarity to know who's qualified to lead and who they're leading. This organizational structure provides a basis for the mission of the church to go forward. Next, we find in scripture that there were numerical records of widows and the church in general that were kept. So if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see at various times where they kind of do a, a, a accounting ago and, and the Lord added this many to their church and the church at this point was this many here and there and there. If they're keeping records, Why? Why are they keeping records? Is it just because they're, they're data freaks? They just love to know the numbers and crunch them on their ancient spreadsheets? No. Record keeping assumes what? Organization. We keep records because there's something organized going on. Data for data's sake is useless. We also see in the book of Acts that there were elections held, which was conducted to fill uh, vacant seats of needed leadership. Again, elections presuppose some kind of formal organization. In fact, later on, we see that there are cases of outward and serious and unrepentant sin that was seeking to undo the church. And in those cases, loving church discipline was carried out. You can read about this in 1 Corinthians 5. In fact, Paul, earlier in this letter, instructs a church to remove a man from their congregation due to flagrant sexual sin. It's like the stuff of Jerry Springer, what was going on in that church. You can read about it later. But formal exclusion assumes what? Some kind of formal inclusion. You can't kick someone out of something that they were never in. So the Girl Scouts can't kick me out. You know why? 
I've never been a Girl Scout, right? Didn't happen. We also see in Paul's letter, specific people were mentioned at specific churches. So there was some kind of an awareness of who was at certain churches and who was at other churches. When he writes his letter at the very ends, we, we tend to flip through those last couple of verses, but he says, hey, in Corinth, I, hey, shout out to Demas, shout out to so-and-so, shout out to Apollo. He, and, 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 and in Romans, he's like, hey, much love to Phoebe. Woman's doing some great work there, right? He knows who's at different churches. People aren't just moving in and out. All of that presupposes some kind of commitment in the early church. Membership was so prominent that when you combine all these things I've just said together, it really makes a strong biblical argument that some kind of formal collecting together of membership existed in the church. It's so prominent and understood that it functions like the computer operating system in the background. You know what I'm talking about? It's that thing that keeps the computer running. Without it, those apps don't work. If your operating system goes down, nothing else works. But it's so understood and implicit that you can forget it's there. In fact, when things are going right, you don't notice that it's there. And that's kind of the point. Church membership is the operating system of what it means to live out the Christian life. So we've looked at how church membership is biblical. Let's also look at how it's beneficial. Now, I'm going to read a lot of verses here, but it's, it's that section of the scripture that Kate read where he's kind of making a, a jab at like the eye saying they can't be a part of the body, so it's not too deep. Let's look at it. Verse 15. If the foot should say, well, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we, we bestow greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts, they're treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another, so that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Church membership not only is biblical, but it's beneficial. Let me quickly give you four reasons. First, God designed believers to thrive together. See, I hope you were reading, hearing in that uh, passage I just read, a sense of God's design. He assembled them together as he chose. And he doesn't do anything haphazardly. He does everything with intention. See, God designed the body of Christ to thrive as a unified diversity, not a singular uniformity. In fact, a few verses earlier in verse seven, Paul says that each member is actually equipped by the spirit for the common good of the body. Here we see that the diversity of roles and responsibilities, gifts and backgrounds and functions are actually by God's good design. Verse 18 said he arranged the members in one body as he chose. See, when God designs something, it's good. 
And when it's good, it's beneficial. It's, when we follow God's design, things work for our benefit. So we see this principle at work in the metaphor. A unified diversity leads to thriving, not singularity and uniformity. Did you catch that in those verses? If the body were just one part, the body couldn't thrive. It can't function. If all are eyes, Paul said, we lose the sense of hearing. If we're all ears, then we lose the sense of seeing. The body is benefited by being a diverse unity, not a uniform singularity. We are interdependent and integrated just like our bodies. We work together as a symbiotic whole. Unity and diversity, each working together for the common good of the whole. In fact, not only is being a member called membership, but one who is a part of the body is one who participates, right? We call them a participant. When our body's working together, it's participating together. Now, what do we call something that's attached to a body but does not truly belong to the body? Something which merely consumes and never contributes. Do we call that thing a member or a participant? No, we call it a parasite, right? It's living off of the body and draining from it for its own personal good. It's only interested in consumption. These verses teach against that. These verses teach that we need each other. We work together and we're mutually dependent on one another. Did you hear that at the end? When one member suffers, all suffer. You ever stubbed your pinky toe? I mean, just really slammed it. It's so small, seemingly insignificant. I mean, how often do you think about it? Probably only when you stub it, right? Slam it hard, what happens? You come crashing down. And it seems like in that moment, the only part of your body that exists is your pinky toe. Let's get real for a moment. Can the body survive without the heart? You might be able to give up a pinky toe. Maybe some of you have four toes in here and you're doing just fine. But no one can survive without the heart. See, the whole body goes down if the heart goes down. This is the picture the scriptures present. We're bound together in an inextricable way. Likewise, when one member is honored, we all rejoice together. This passage says we rise and we fall together. I need you and you need me. Look around. Like, I mean, really, actually, look around. Turn your head. Look around. We need each other. We cannot fulfill the mission that God has given this church on our own. Nobody in here can do it on their own. It's a mission too big. It's a mission too beautiful for one person alone. Can't do it. While this passage highlights how our diversity and interconnectedness leads to our thriving, there's other passages that speak to other ways that the church is beneficial. I'm gonna quickly list a few more. Second, leadership provides care and direction. See, like I talked about earlier, that God has given his church leadership structures. Being faithful and committed to a local church provides the relationship necessary to thrive in a leadership environment. See, by God's design, certain qualified leaders are given to the church in order to lead it, provide care, and give it direction. Relationship makes leading and following both healthy and productive. See, leaders are given the sobering responsibility to rightly explain God's word and to give good insight and counsel on how to live and follow Christ. 
Leaders also provide protection against false teaching. And when necessary, leaders are also given to us to protect us from ourselves. If we're honest, aren't there times in our own lives when we are blind to our own desires and we do things that are self-destructive? Am I the only one who's like that? Right? Good, godly leaders in the church will courageously step in and speak hard truths to us so that we can get back on track. This is difficult, if not impossible, without the context of a committed relationship like membership. You can't help point people somewhere if you don't know them. People aren't willing to listen to you if they don't know that you're willing to get down in the mud with them. Relationship makes it possible. Next week, we're gonna look at leadership of the church, so I'm not gonna belabor it here. Third, membership is beneficial because community supports and encourages us. Biblical church membership provides a spiritual community of support and encouragement. Look what the writer says in Hebrews chapter three, verse 12 through 13. He says, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Listen to this. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called to today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The writer is saying that the cure for spiritual drifting, the cure for being deceived by our own sin, the cure to becoming hard to the things of God is community. We are our brother's and sister's keeper. We're meant to care for one another. Now, this doesn't mean we become obsessed, busy bodies, trolling people on Facebook. That's not what that means. But it does mean that we care enough about each other that we're willing to speak truth and love to one another. It takes a lot of courage for a friend to stand up to a friend, right? It means that we find ways to encourage and affirm each other. I don't know if you're Harry Potter fans, but there's this great scene, I believe it's in uh, the first book, where um, one of the kids was willing to stand up to his friends and Dumbledore gives him extra points because he had the courage to stand up to a friend. It's one thing to stand up to an enemy. It's another thing to stand up to a friend. It takes a ton of courage to do that. We need to start seeing each other as our real family. Committed relationships makes that possible. If you only see someone a few times a year, then we can just pretend around each other like we have it all together, right? You can fool almost anybody for 10 minutes. But if you live in proximity with each other and have frequency of time spent together, you actually have to drop the facade, right? You can no longer keep it going. And that's where life change really happens. We were created for relational intimacy and membership just provides the context for that to happen. This kind of community requires us to be courageous and vulnerable. And those kind of deep relationships do not happen instantly. They take time to form over meals and over seasons. And when those relationships form, we can now start to actually act and live together as family. Fourth, membership is beneficial because it provides a place for us to learn and discover our gifts. See, biblical church membership provides a context for us to discover how God has gifted us and it gives us a place to exercise and use those gifts. 
The scriptures listed on the screen, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, write those down. You'll see a list of all the ways that God has blessed and given the church spiritual gifts, which aren't meant for our own benefit, but actually he gives us those gifts for the common good. The church becomes this safe harbor for us to discover not only how we're gifted, but it gives us a place to actually use those gifts, to minister to one another, and to serve the places God has given us. Again, we'll talk about this more in the fourth um, message of this series, but it's important for us to see that membership is beneficial because we have an opportunity to discover our gifts and use them. Another way to say it is this, Christianity is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. We all have our roles to play. God equips those who he's called into relationship and it's there we find life and meaning and purpose when we're active and involved on his mission. So not only is church membership biblical and beneficial, finally, let's close it out and see how it's beautiful. Verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church First, apostles and prophets, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. See, earlier in 1 Corinthians 12, we saw how God designed the church to be a unified diversity. Paul, again, closes out this section and returns to that theme. He says, we're all the body of Christ, which speaks to our unity. And then he says, we are all individually members of it, which speaks again to our diversity. See, we don't err on one or the other, but we hold both in tension. Then he goes on to list different roles and responsibilities and makes the point that church cannot survive, let alone thrive, in a homogenous entity, right? He's given different gifts, different roles, different responsibilities. We have to have diversity. And in so, I hope you see the beauty there. See, our diversity is not merely functional and beneficial, which it is, but our diversity also makes us beautiful. Diversity is meant to bring beauty and harmony like a symphony. You ever gone to hear a symphony? Different instruments of various sizes and materials. You've got percussion, you've got woodwinds, you've got brass, you've got strings, all playing different notes. You have the bass clef and the the treble clef. You have all playing different notes, sometimes at different speeds and different times. You have some, some instruments coming in here, but other ones remaining silent. Sometimes one instrument carries the melody. Another one carries the harmony. Some are gladly muted for a moment and some are loud. Many moving parts, but what are they doing? Playing one beautiful song, one beautiful sound, singing together. Or take a mosaic. Diversity in a mosaic creates an image that would be impossible without it. You know what a mosaic is? It's where you have a a compilation of broken tiles of various sizes and shapes and colors arranged together to show one image. What would a mosaic be like if it was all the same shape, same size, same color, majoring in uniformity, but it would lack the diversity necessary to image a picture? But you add diversity to a mosaic with different shapes and sizes and colors, and it can image something beautiful. 
See, the body of Christ with her many members is a mosaic. So what image are we supposed to show the world? We're supposed to show Christ to the world. See, the world is supposed to see us and our diversity and in seeing us, see this unity and this beauty and in so doing, they see Christ. The body of Christ with her many members is a symphony. We're playing our different parts, yes, but together we sing the song of the gospel. In fact, Paul keeps on going in chapter 13 to describe what love is. It's a pretty famous passage. Even people who don't know anything about the Bible have heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's often recited at weddings. You may have heard it before. But I want you to know, it's important, the context of this great passage on love is not in a romantic marriage, but it's actually in the context of the body of Christ. Now, obviously, that kind of love is present in a romantic relationship, but when Paul was writing this, he was seeing the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and love never ends. That's beautiful. That's love. That's how we're called to love each other in the church. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, the way the world will know that you're my disciples is how well you love each other. The way they love each other, the way we love each other, displays a beauty to the watching world around us. Did you know that there's over 60 passages in the New Testament that speak directly to how we're supposed to treat one another in the church? We call them the the one another passages. There's about 60 of them. I'm not gonna read them all, but here's a taste. This is how we're supposed to live with each other so we show a beauty to the world. Be at peace with each other. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you. Instruct one another. Serve one another in love. Carry one another's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Love one another deeply. You hear what he's trying to say? That becomes impossible without relationship. It's easy to love someone if they're at a distance. Easy to forgive people you don't care about. Easy to bear someone's burdens when you don't know what they are. But in committed relationship, those take on a new flavor. This changes, all these things is, brings about the beauty. And this changes the conversation from, do I have to commit to a local church? To, I can't believe I get to be a part of the local church. Do you feel the difference between those two things? Church membership gives you a people to do this kind of life with. And church membership matters because it's biblical, it's beneficial, and it's beautiful. As we close, I want to mention a couple potential elephants in the room. For some here today, membership doesn't sound like a good idea at all because we're broken. 
We have individualism deeply sewn into our DNA and we love our independence. In fact, we crave it. We don't wanna be held accountable to anyone and we love having one foot in the door and one foot out. We love to know where the exit signs are and have an escape plan in place. We've bought into the lie that my relationship with God is private and it's just Jesus and me. We say, I'm all set on the church. I don't need anyone. We're perfectly content to receive the benefits of belonging without any of the responsibility. We've reduced the church to a spiritual membership like Costco to shop for goods and services. And so we keep the church at arm's length. If that's you here and you feel some of that, you felt some of that urge when we were talking through it, look at your heart today. My hope and prayer is that you would see the church as a means of God's grace to us, to feed us and lead us to the end. I long for you to see the church as your spiritual family where you can be known and know others, a people who will love you and serve you and a people for you to love and serve as well. But my words, no matter how well-crafted they are, no matter how airtight my argument was, which it was, It'll never move your heart. Only the spirit of the living God can open us to see the beauty of Christ and the bride that he died for. See, when you realize that he didn't simply die for us individually, that he died for us corporately, it's only then that you will see the value and beauty of our membership and relationship to each other. He endured the cross. He endured its shame so that we could have the dignity of being called sons and daughters of God in intimate relationships with one another, the family of God, the church. It takes the spirit of the living God to do that. And you might need to um, repent this morning of any kind of hesitancy in keeping the church at arm's length. Now, second, I wanna address another group of people. You might have guessed that I'm pretty passionate about church membership. I believe it's biblical and beneficial and beautiful, but hear me when I say this. I also know that being a part of a church is broken. There are no perfect churches. This is a church where we will not sweep things under the rug. We're gonna have the boldness to say, man, the church is broken. We live in a broken world, and for right now, the church is not immune to that brokenness. So if you've been a part of a church before, maybe you've been hurt. Maybe you've been burned by the church. Maybe you're saying, Clint, I see it. I see now that membership is biblical. I see how it's beneficial and I am being open to seeing how beautiful it is, but I've been hurt before. And so I'm a little hesitant to enter back in. And I've been in ministry now for about 10 years and that's a story that is all too familiar. And it's sad. And it means the church needs to say that we're sorry but I don't, and I don't wanna gloss over that. So let's acknowledge the fact that too many times, not only do we hurt each other, but too many times institutions and organizations can be blind to its people. For the broken, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and broken. I will give you rest. The body of Christ is not perfect, far from it but it is who Christ has given to us as a means of his grace for healing and restoration. Our hope is that Seven Mile Road would be a church where the broken are mended, where you'll have gospel and safety and time to heal. Let's create something together where we walk in humility 
and vulnerability and not let past hurts define us. Let's mourn together where we need to mourn. Let's heal together where we need to heal. And then together, let's build something beautiful. Let's pray.